Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 6 of chapter 12. So, Revelation chapter 12 and verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. Please, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's Word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, right now, all around the world, people are probably hearing sermons preached on the Incarnation from the Gospel of Matthew or from the Gospel of Luke. Today, we in fact may be the only ones who will be addressing the Incarnation from the book of Revelation. This is probably be a first for all of you, as I know it's a first for me from addressing the Incarnation from the book of Revelation. Perhaps even before today, you never thought that it could be done. You never thought that the Incarnation could be proclaimed from the book of Revelation. But as we will see today, just as the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke declare the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus, so too does the book of Revelation. And this is what's so incredible, though, brothers and sisters, about the providence of God. Because if you've been at the church long enough, you know that we don't usually stop our consecutive week study in a book in order to change topic for a particular holiday that's being celebrated in the world. And so, I was very much ready after finishing chapter 11 to come here this morning and pick up in chapter 12 preaching whatever the text was for this day. But lo and behold, this is the text that we have landed on this morning. Which is a reminder to us that nothing happens by chance. right? It's a reminder to us of of Proverbs 16.33 and how true that is. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. And so with that, we're going to proceed then. Looking at chapter 12 and these first six verses this morning, which will carry us back all the way to the birth of Christ. It will carry us even further back than that. We will consider that in just a bit. When we concluded chapter 11, what we concluded is the first half of the book of Revelation. And that first half really formed a unit. One unit. 
And now in chapters 12 through 22, we're going to cover the second half of the, or the second unit of the book of Revelation. Now it's in that first unit, in the first half of the book, that what we've seen was really the outward struggle between the church and the world. That's really what was revealed to us time and time again through those first 11 chapters. Right? We've seen that in chapters 2 and 3 as we looked at the seven churches. How they were persecuted outwardly by the Jews and the Romans and their neighbors and their co-workers. we also seen that struggle. It was also revealed to us in chapters 6 and in chapters 8 and 9 under the seal and trumpet judgments. But in the second major unit of this book, what it reveals to us is the why, right? Or the, or the, what is going on behind the scenes. That is what it reveals to us today. It reveals to us that, that what is going on on earth is a result of a much greater battle that is occurring. Right? What the second half of the book of Revelation teaches us is that what is occurring is a result of a different war that's taking place that we do not see with our eyes, but that is going on between really Christ and the devil. That is what is being revealed to us in the second half of this book. In the first half of the book, we are introduced to earthly enemies. Those who reject the Son and who are persecuting Christ's church. That is going to continue to go on throughout the age of the church. But in the second unit, or in the second half of the book of Revelation, what we are introduced to are those who have power over them. Right? We are introduced to those who have sway over the people on this earth. Right? It is in the second half of this book that we are taken deeper into the spiritual warfare that is taking place. Right? We get a, a glimpse behind the, the scenes. And it is shown to us that the primary enemy of the church is Satan. And with him, these two beasts. And the harlot Babylon. And those who wear the mark of the beast. Or what we need to understand is, is that as we move along through the book of Revelation, what we are doing is really like peeling an onion back. Right? We are uncovering more and more layers as we progress through our study in the book of Revelation as God is revealing deeper and deeper mysteries to His people through it. In our text today, we actually see the key conflict that arose between Christ and the devil and why it has so affected believers here on earth. But what we also see from our text today is that it reveals to us Reasons why we ought to have full confidence and assurance and trust in the Lord. Knowing that no matter what goes on in the world today, that we are victorious in Christ and that Satan is already a defeated foe. And so with this, brothers and sisters, we're going to look at three main headings this morning. And our three main headings or our three main points are this. Point number one will be the woman. The woman. And this is really covered in verses 1 and 2. Our second point then will be the dragon and the child. The dragon and the child. And this is really going to cover verses 3 to 5. And then finally, our, our third point will be the protection of the woman. And this is covered in verse 6. 
So point number one, the woman. Please look with me once more at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now the first thing that I want us to see, no matter what viewpoint you take as you read the book of Revelation, whether it's futurist or historicist or preterist or idealist, I think one thing that we can agree on in opposition to the Roman Catholic understanding of this text is that this woman is not to be taken literally. Right? The woman is not to be taken literally. Why? Well, the text makes it clear. It says that the woman is a great sign. Right? She is a sign. She is a, a symbol of something far greater. She's a sign that points us to something that is signified that we need to look at, we need to find, we need to discover. What is this a sign for? What is this a sign of? So that we are not to be looking at one singular individual in history to identify the woman with, like Mary. When we do that, in our attempt to do that, we are going to come to a, a totally wrong interpretation of the passage. We're going to totally miss The whole point here. And instead, what we need to see is that this vivid description of this woman that we read in verses 1 and 2 is given to us so that we might go back and look for that imagery throughout the Scriptures to see what does this teach so that we might know how God has intended us to understand this woman of this text. And so in order to understand the woman here of our text, We need to look in the Old Testament. We need to see where are these signs and symbols found. And one of those places comes from Genesis chapter 37. If you'd like to, please turn with me in your Bibles then to Genesis 37. Remember how the woman is described here. Genesis chapter 37, we'll start at verse 9. Speaking of Joseph, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So what do we see there? Who are the sun and who are the moon in that passage? Jacob and Rebekah and the eleven tribes who bow down to the twelfth tribe who is Joseph. Also in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 20, it describes restored Israel. And it says this about Israel. Your sun shall go down no more, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, 
and your days of mourning shall be ended. There again, restored Israel is described as what? Moon and a sun. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So brothers and sisters, all of that to say that we need to see that the woman represents the people of God through whom the Messiah was brought forth out of into the world. But it also, it also includes the entire community of faith, the entirety of the covenant community of God, both Old Testament and New. For what do we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16? That it is Christ who, who now holds the seven stars in His hands. Who are those seven stars? Remember the seven elders of those Christian churches, those New Testament churches. Remember Revelation chapter 7 as we read the, the, about the, the 144,000 in the 12 tribes which now consisted of Gentiles as well. Right? What did that depict for us? Right? The inclusion of the, of the Gentiles into the, the people of God so that the twelve tribes of Israel equates with all of God's people from the Old Testament to the New. So that this woman here in chapter 12, we need to see, is being presented to us as incorporating all of God's people from before the coming of Christ to after the coming of Christ. We also need to understand that this woman should not be interpreted as a singular figure, someone like Mary even, because of what it later tells us in verse 17 of chapter 12. There we read, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Right? So we see that this is not a, a singular figure. It's talking about all of the people of God that the dragon is now making war against. So that the woman is the covenant community of our Lord, who as one author puts it, in whose nursery God's children are raised. Right? The, covenant the covenant community is the nursery in which God's people are now raised. Now verse 1. Well, then we need to see that it depicts for us is how God views His church, how God views His covenant community in light of Christ's atoning work. Right? That is what is revealed to us here in verse 1. And what do we see? That He sees her as something wonderful. Right? He sees her as something arrayed in glory. Right? Christ right, sees the church in, his, in her true heavenly character, for she is clothed in the sun. Right? What does it mean to be clothed in the sun? Well, it means the nature of the church is to be those who bear light to the world. Right? That is the nature of the church. And as we bear light of the light of Christ to the world, God sees us as beautiful and arrayed in glory. What about the moon under her feet? Well, in the Song of Solomon, Chapter 6, verse 10. Solomon's queen is associated with Jerusalem there and is said to be as beautiful as the moon and bright as the sun. So, not only then does the woman who depicts the church 
in glory as it is arrayed in the sun. But likewise, what the Lord is describing for us is that He sees the church likewise as beautiful and faithful to the Lord as well. Right? This is how He sees His church. Glorious, radiant, beautiful, faithful. And she is wearing on her head a crown of, of 12 stars. Those 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But the crowns, what do the crowns mean? Well, as we look throughout the book of Revelation, right, the crown is spoken about often. And what does the crown connote to us? Oftentimes, a share in Christ's victory. right, Our, our kingship. The crown is the symbol of our eternal reward that we have through faith in Christ. We can see this in a text like Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept My Word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. It's a crown of victory. A crown of our kingship. A crown which is symbolic of our eternal reward. Brothers and sisters, then I want us to see, do you understand that, that this is how Christ sees His church? Right? This is how Christ sees you and I today. Right? How precious and how attractive you are to the Lord of glory. You know, it's easy to become discouraged in this world, isn't it? Because the world does not see us in that way. The world sees us as something hideous. Right? The world sees us as something that it does not want to be associated with. It sees us as something to shun. It sees us as something ugly. But know this, that the Lord does not see you in that way. He sees you as attractive and beautiful and glorious. Right? He loves His people. We read in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. For the husbands here, you know what it's like to rejoice over your bride, don't you? Well, the Lord is telling us this is how He rejoices over His bride as well. This is how He rejoices over you, over the church, over His people. Right? He rejoices and He is well pleased with us as He sees us in all of our beauty, arrayed in glory as those who have been covered in the blood of Christ Jesus, removing our stains and our filthiness. And then in verse 2, the woman, though was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And we might ask ourselves, how can this be? How can we just be described as this beautiful thing? This glorious possession of God's, yet crying out in pain and in agony over giving birth. Well, our wives perhaps when they were pregnant with child, and it was hard to move maybe and uncomfortable during that time period, they might not have felt very beautiful. But in one sense to their husbands, 
They were most beautiful at that time, weren't they? For it was at that time they were carrying this new life in their womb. And so this is how we see verse 1 and verse 2 together. Right? The church, the people of God, the entire covenant community from the Old Testament to the New was beautiful and glorious to the Lord. Especially as Jesus Christ right, was, was in the womb of God's people right, through thousands of years of history before His birth. So if the woman then represents the, the covenant community of God, then we need to ask, what do the, those pains, what does that agony of, of childbearing then represent as well? As one author puts it, Old Testament Israel was pregnant with Christ for thousands of years. Right? Israel was being used as a womb from which the Messiah would be born. And so we need to see that that pain and that agony over, the, over childbearing describes to us the torment and the persecution that God's covenant community experienced leading up to the birth of Christ. Right? That's what that represents. And the idea of, of persecution in this text is expressed even more so when we understand what this word pain uh, means. In verse 2, the word pain here can likewise be translated torment or torture. We see this in Revelation chapter 11, verse 10 of the two witnesses. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets who had been a, a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That's the same word there for pain. Torment. Tortured. And the fact that this word is not used in biblical or extra-biblical literature ever to refer to the woman suffering childbirth pains highlights to us the fact that what this word is describing for us is the persecution and the torment that the church has experienced against, from the Lord's opponents right, leading up to the birth of Christ. But we've also identified this woman as the entire community of faith from the Old Testament to New, which also tells us that this torment and this persecution is something that is ongoing even now with the covenant community of Christ. It describes the continued torment and persecution that God's people now experience as we bear witness to the light of Christ in this world. But then in some total, brothers and sisters, what I want us to see in this vision, in these first two verses, is that we are given a reminder of who we are and what our mission is. We are, we are shown who we are and what our mission is. And who we are is God's prized possession. We are God's precious people. Even if nobody in the world is willing to claim us, Christ will and does claim us as His own. But likewise, what is our mission in this world? To be light to the world. right? To reflect the glory of Christ to people all around the world. To bear witness to our Lord's name. And as we do, we ought to ex- expect to experience torment and persecution and suffering because of it. This leads us then to our Second point this morning, 
which is the dragon and the child. The dragon and the child. Please look with me at verse, starting at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Here, brothers and sisters, what do we see? Right at the very opening verse of, of, of chapter 12, verse 3, another sign appeared. Another sign appeared. Which tells us what this, this great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems is a sign of something else. Right? It, it conveys to us some other message. We are not to understand that the devil is literally this big red dragon. Right? That's not how we are to understand the devil. And you say, well, how do you know that the dragon is the devil? Well, later in chapter 12 and verse 9, we are, we are told that the dragon is the devil. And yet, although, brothers and sisters, the, the great Red dragon is a sign describing the devil. We know, though, that it is describing to us something that is very real, isn't it? Right? The devil is real. This world wants you to believe that the devil is a myth, that the devil is a fable, but we know that the devil is true and the devil is real. The devil is out there. Right? What does Peter say in 1 Peter 5.8? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so see, the devil is everywhere. He wants to destroy your soul by any means necessary. And one of those ways is what? It's through murder. It is through killing. Remember back in chapter 6 and verse 4, the second rider, as the seal is unleashed, was a, was a red horse and with it a rider. And what did that red horse symbolize? What was he enabled to do to take peace from the earth? So that what? So that men would slay one another. Right? He, he was allowed to take peace so that men would, would kill one another, would murder one another. And so what we need to see is that the red color of the dragon is meant to convey to us the murderous and, 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 and devilish nature of this dragon. Right? It was Jesus Himself who says to us in, in John 8.44 that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And so this color red of the dragon symbolizes for us his, his murderous nature. The dragon in the Old Testament was oftentimes used as a personification of evil as well. And so in a text like Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, we read this, that God will slay the dragon that is in the sea. But what is he speaking about there? He's speaking about destroying Assyria. So that Assyria here is described as the dragon. So that we see here that the devil is depicted as something evil and murderous and wicked. Now the dragon is said to have seven heads which describe his complete influence over the world. It describes his complete influence. It, it describes his wisdom and his cunning 
also within the world, how He is able to, to keep the, the eyes of men blinded to the truth. He is able to blind men with His lies. He also has ten horns. What have we said that horns symbolize in Scripture? They symbolize power. What does ten symbolize? Completeness. The Ten Commandments. So ten is a number of completeness. So that the ten horns symbolize the, the complete strength and oppressive power of the devil in the world and over those who he has control over. Remember we said last week that Satan is the god of this world. And the seven diadems, along with these other symbols, reinforce that understanding. As Satan's crown is not a crown of victory, but it's a crown that symbolizes the devil's earthly dominion. Right? That is what these seven diadems symbolize. The devil's earthly dominion. Right? In Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, Jesus is said to have many diadems. And so what do we see here? Right? The devil wants to mimic Jesus, doesn't he? Right? He wants a crown of his own. But his crown represents his false claim to sovereign authority in opposition to the true sovereign authority of the true King who is Jesus. In verse 4, then we read likewise that the the tail of this great dragon swept down a, a third of the stars in heaven and cast them down to the earth. This could be a description of the fall of the devil where he took with him a whole, a whole host of angels in rebellion against God as he tried to usurp the power of God. Right? Satan wants to rule. He wants to reign. Satan wants to be worshipped. He wants to be served. Right? He wants what Christ has. And so ever since from the beginning, he has sought to devour the child. We see this later in verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Brothers and sisters, do we see that this is the entire story of Scripture right here in a nutshell? And the child is Christ. Throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there is this conflict going on between the seed of the woman and the dragon. We see this throughout the entirety of Scripture. It was Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, where the Lord said to the serpent after deceiving Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you, here he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's this battle, brothers and sisters, that we read everywhere in Scripture. It is all over the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Think back to, to Seth and the flood. Think back to Seth and the flood. Who do you think it was who was behind the suggestion of Seth's sons to marry with the daughters of Cain so that Seth's generations might be destroyed from whom the Messiah was to come. It was the dragon. It was the, ultimately the dragon who was behind those things. And yet, he lost that battle. Think about it. Who was it that persecuted Jacob's descendants? 
Who was it as they left the Egyptian captivity? Who was it that whispered in the ears of Jacob's descendants to craft for themselves a golden calf that they might dance around and worship in hopes that God in His wrath would consume that people? It was the devil in hopes that the Messiah would not come forth from them. And yet he failed again. Out of the tribe of Judah, the Lord chose one family, David's, that the promised seed would be born from. So what happens in Scripture? Saul is provoked to go after David, to kill him. Time and time again. But each time, what do we see? The Lord makes a way of escape for David. Do you not see, brothers and sisters, as we get a a look behind the scenes, that throughout all of history, this is the conflict that has been going on in Scripture leading up to the very birth of Christ. And every time, what is the result? Satan fails. Satan fails. And this inevitably leads up to what? The birth of Christ. It leads up to the incarnation. Look with me please at Matthew chapter 2 and verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Do we see this again? At the birth of our Lord, during at His incarnation, right? Herod sought to destroy Christ under the sway of the devil. It was the devil that was behind Herod's attempt to kill Christ as he tried to devour and to destroy Christ at His birth. But again He failed as Christ was kept safe as He was taken away to Egypt. And so see, brothers and sisters, that the birth of Christ in Bethlehem is once again God's victory over the devil in this conflict. Again, victorious over the devil. And thanks be to God for it. Right? Thanks be to God for this victory. Why? Because we needed it so desperately. Because on account of sin, you and I needed the incarnation. Right? We needed Christ to come. Without Him, we would have no way to escape the eternal punishment that was due to us for our sins. It was necessary for the Son of God to be incarnate. Right? Because God could not deny His own justice. Right? Satisfaction had to be made to free us. But it was a satisfaction that you and I could not fulfill. Right? Satisfaction could not be made to infinite justice, but by an infinite ransom. And that infinite ransom could be found in none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This alone is another reason why Satan stood 
by, through wicked individuals, throughout all of history, in attempts to devour the child. He did not want Christ to fulfill His purposes and accomplish His mission. And even after Christ is born, has the devil stopped? No. We read about this. When Christ is born, He's taken to the as he as he grows up, he's taken then out to the to the wilderness. Where what happens there? Satan tries to devour him in the wilderness. What then also happens? He seeks to destroy Christ through who? Through the betrayal of Judas. And then finally, after all of this, the devil finally thinks he wins as as Jesus Christ hangs upon the cross. He finally thinks, aha, now. I have destroyed Christ. But in fact, brothers and sisters, we need to see that the cross was a further victory for Christ over the devil. It is upon the cross that He crushed the head of the serpent, doing the very thing that the devil has been trying to prevent for thousands of years before. And so we need to see, brothers and sisters, the Incarnation as a marvelous event, a marvelous historical event. And yet, brothers and sisters, it is more than a mere baby being born in a manger. Right? The incarnation is about God with us. It is about God tabernacling amongst His people to save them from their sins. But even more than that, it is about Christ coming to likewise destroy the works of the devil. This is too why Christ needed to come. Not only to redeem humanity, but to destroy the works of the devil. And that He did. And that He did. And now, brothers and sisters, He rules the nations with a rod of iron, which is an allusion to Psalm 2. Right? Christ in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, defeated His worldly enemies. And now is enthroned in heaven. He has all power and all authority as a result of the accomplishment of His task. And now the nations belong to Him. And now through the Gospel, He sends His Word out to the peoples all around the world. And either you will believe and be saved or you will fall under His rod of judgment. And since we see the dragon then has failed in his task of destroying Jesus, what now has he done? Now that Jesus has ascended on high, he has turned his attention back to the woman so that he might now devour her. And this leads us to our third and our final point, the protection of the woman. Please look with me at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Remember, this describes what happens after uh, Christ's ascension. Right? At the end of verse 5, this child was caught up to God and to His throne. Right? So the ascension has occurred. And now this is describing what happens to the woman after Christ has ascended on high. And so we likewise need to read this not as a literal escape to some geographical location in a wilderness somewhere. Right? Verses 1 and 2 taught us that the woman is the people of God. 
It represents the true people of God. And so the vision of the woman fleeing into the wilderness where she has a place safely prepared for her to go is a description by God of the church being protected by Him while He is away as He is ascended on high. Right? This, of, this picture of the woman fleeing into the wilderness right, is, a, is a promise really of God to us that we have His divine protection. And how long does that divine protection last? 1260 days. It's no coincidence that that's the same time period in which the nations will try to trample the holy city. It's no coincidence that that's the same exact time period that the two witnesses who represent the church are going to be proclaiming the Gospel in the world until the end. So that these 1260 days we need to see our promise of God's protection of the church throughout the entire age of the church until Christ returns to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And so, brothers and sisters, this teaches us something, I think, that we too often forget. And that is this, that the, the world is not on our side. The world is not on our side. You see, the woman has to flee into the wilderness, into the safety and protection of the Lord. The world is not on your side, nor will it ever be. Nor will it ever be. The, the world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus says in John fifteen nineteen, If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away. This is why, brothers and sisters, we are not to look to the world to find comfort and to find peace and safety and security and nourishment. For if you truly belong to the Lord, the world is not your friend. Although it may attempt to be, it will, it will pretend to be. Right? It, it subtly and, and cleverly will try to draw you away from Christ and draw you deeper and deeper into the world so that it can have sway over your minds and over your hearts and over your actions. But we must see the world for what it is. It's a battleground. And so we must not give in to this world's allurements. It also ought to teach us then that if not the world we flee to, who is it that we flee to? We flee to Christ. We flee to Him for safety and protection and nourishment and all that we need. And how do we do that? Well, one of the ways in which we do that is through weekly worship. Right? Through participation in the means of grace. But also you do that through daily worship as well. Not just once a week, but every day of your life is offered up to God as a sacrifice of praise. Your whole life is to be of service to the Lord. This is how you remain protected by God as well. This text reveals to us then the, the trappings that lie behind everything that takes place in the world. 
We see how the devil is behind it all. How the devil was behind trying to devour Jesus for thousands of years before His birth. And so today, brothers and sisters, when you are pressured by family member, by friend, by co-worker to conform to the world, you must not conform to it. Realizing that it is the devil ultimately who is behind it all. He is behind it all. Also then see from this final verse how we flee the world. How we flee sin. How we flee temptation. Right? The woman fled where? To the safety of the Lord. Right? If you want to know how do I become less like the world and more like Christ, then you flee to where your safe haven is. And where is that? Ultimately, it is found in God's Word. You find safety in God's Word, wherever God's Word is. What does Jesus pray in John 17.15? He says, Father, I pray that You not take them out of the world, but that You keep them from the evil one. And right after that, He says, sanctify them in Your truth, and Your Word is truth. We read in Scripture, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Brothers and sisters, this is an exhortation to be in, in and around God's Word daily and often. Reading God's Word. Praying God's Word. Having the Word of God upon your lips. Right? Daily worship within your homes. Making sure that we are gathering before the Word of God every Lord's Day as well. This is how you will stay safe. And then never forget, brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close, never forget to thank the Lord. Never forget to thank the Lord. For although right now we may engage in hard battles, although from time to time we we are struggling, we do battle, We get tired of that battle. We know that the battle has already been won. Christ is already victorious and Satan has already been defeated. The the child who was born in Bethlehem is the Savior of God's people and there is nothing that Satan can do to destroy that nor to devour you. Christ is conquered all by His blood. And so as you sit here today, you can likewise know that through Christ and His blood, you have conquered the devil as well. This is what we read in chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are so thankful for Your providence. Uh, We are thankful, Lord, that You safeguard Your people. And we see that throughout all of history. We thank You, Lord, that You continually demonstrate that You make a promise and it is kept and that there is nothing anyone can do to thwart the promises of God. Lord, Lord, we ask that You help us this day to be those who are discerning. That we would be those who see beyond the trappings and allurements of this world. 
see what's really taking place behind all things. That we would not be deceived. That we would not run and flee to the things of the world to find peace and happiness and comfort and safety. But rather that we be reminded and taught this day by Your Holy Spirit that if it's peace we desire, if it's safety we long for, then it is to Christ that we must come. So Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.